Please open your Bibles to John chapter 11, verses 1 through 16. If you didn't bring your Bible, the Pew Bible in front of you uh, on page 897, hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. May God bless to your understanding this reading from his holy word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we might understand, along with all the saints, How wide and how deep and how high is the love of Christ. Father, I pray that you would be our teacher. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I was in a group of pastors this week and we were discussing challenges that the church faces proclaiming the gospel to our culture. Part of the discussion turned to the pace at which change is taking place in our society. The societal norms that we took for granted 20 years ago are no longer adhered to. And to assert that there are very important reasons why society needs these norms is really to put yourself in the place where you're going to be mocked. And to go a step further... To assert that biblical ethics are true and necessary for a society to function in a healthy way is to be attacked. And if you should affirm that Jesus Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life, according to our society, is to spew heresy. On a side note, and you know how studiously I avoid Uh, politics uh, from the pulpit ours is a 
spiritual kingdom, yet at the same time we are called to address um, issues in our society that uh, that are unrighteous and when our um, publicly elected leaders spew unrighteousness, uh, we are called to address them as well. So on a side note, um, even the President of the United States just this week at a national prayer breakfast drew a moral equivalence, moral equivalence between Christianity and radical Islamic terrorists. He went on to say that it is prideful to assert that Christianity teaches the only way of salvation. I agree with Eric Erickson, who said in an article that I read this week about the president's speech, he said the speech was reeking with contempt for faith in general and Christianity in particular. The direction in which our society is heading is distressing. And the pace at which we are heading there is overwhelming. Our moral fabric is eroding. Our societal cohesiveness is wearing away. Our concern for our neighbors and their well-being is evaporating. And what is most fearful is that we have great catastrophes that are looming over the horizon. Who's to say when we'll have another national disaster? What will happen if the Ebola virus breaks loose, breaks out of containment in many thousands in each large city? should begin dying? What will happen if another well-planned terrorist attack should take place that is as great as, as the 9-11 attack or greater? What will happen when the next financial crisis will come? And it will come. And yet we have not climbed out of the, the hole that we found ourselves in in 2008 in that financial crisis. What will happen if any of these things should occur and we do not have the societal foundation and moral fabric that we need to continue to exist as a great nation? Phyllis, if I, if I should apologize this morning for being a Debbie Downer. Um, I'm not being a sensationalist to engage your emotions as I start this sermon. I'm genuinely concerned about these things with the eroding of societal foundations and the lack of quality national leadership, how severely will the fabric of our nation be ripped apart? Will it only be a little bit? I would hope. But certainly, there will be some um, ripping and eroding that will take place if any national tragedy should befall us. Because our foundation has been so undermined at such a quick pace. I think that there are two institutions that are vital at this juncture in our nation's history. Actually, they're always vital. They're never unimportant. I think their weakness um, has helped bring us to this point. The two institutions that I'm speaking of are the church and the family. I was just talking with Sylvester Pittman this week about the importance of the family, and uh, I think he's going to lead some men's roundtable discussions about it. We talked about that. Um, 
we need the church and by the church, the church family. Because if, if we are, if our society is being pulled, we need to band together as the body of Christ. We need to band together as a congregation who is committed to each other. Um, and we need the family. The family needs to be prepared and strengthened and melded together. Uh, many people have said that a, a society is as only, strong as, only as strong as their families. But there's something even more fundamental that we need. In order for the family and the church to thrive, even in the midst of chaos, if chaos should ever come, we need a firm trust in the sovereignty of God. He is the firm foundation for the church and the family. He is our rock in the storms of life. He is the substance of life when the norms of society are eroding. Our passage teaches us the sovereignty of God in the most practical terms imaginable. I entitled the sermon, um, When God is Running Late, just to be provocative. The truth is, God is never running late. Our passage preaches to us, our passage teaches us that God is always on time. Our passage teaches us that God always works in His timing. Our passage teaches us to trust in God, to trust in His purposes, to trust in His timing, even when we cannot understand His timing, even when His timing is the exact opposite of what we think should happen. Our God is sovereign. Daniel 4 34 and 35 underscores God's sovereignty. It says, God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Our God sovereign. We must have our firm foundation, not in our society, but in the sovereign God. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are here in our passage. They were especially close friends of Jesus. He had a unique personal affection for them. We meet them several times in the four Gospels because their lives were so closely tied to the Lord Jesus. And Lazarus, here in our passage, has fallen gravely ill. Notice how Mary and Martha told Jesus about Lazarus' illness in the message that they sent to him. Look at verse 3. So the sister sent, him, sent to him saying, Lord, Lord, he whom you love is ill. He who you love. And then notice here, this is not an invitation. This is not a request. Come be here. They just assumed that as soon as Jesus received this message, 
that he would hurry off to be with them. Such was the intimacy of their relationship with Christ. They loved him. He, re- he returned their love and much more so. But instead of coming immediately, what does Jesus do? He delays. Look at verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And the reason for his delay was to wait until Lazarus had died. Look at, look at verses 14 and 15. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. <coughs> From Mary and Martha's perspective, it appeared that Jesus was running late that he had not arrived in time to save Lazarus. But from Jesus' perspective, which is because he's the Son of God, because he's the second person of the Trinity, his perspective is that he was right on time. Again, look at verse 4. Verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Why is Jesus going to Bethany two days after Lazarus had died? You know, by the time he would have reached uh, Bethany, not only would Lazarus have been dead two days, but he would have missed the funeral. Well, he tells us the purpose of his going in verse 11. So in verse 11, after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And as we'll see next week, Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. We're in a bad spot nationally, in my estimation. Calamity, disorder, and tragedy likely lie ahead of us in the very near generations. How great that will be, I don't know. I worry for the state of our nation um, that my children will live in. I wonder, have I prepared them? All of us suffer smaller calamities all the time. From losing our keys when we have an appointment, to accidents, to illnesses, none of us are immune to our own personal um, crisis, our own personal calamities. And none of us can be too careful. It's going to befall us all. How does James uh, chapter 1 verse 2 count it pure joys? Or count it pure joy, my brothers, when you fall into various, not, various trials, not if? <coughs> but through it all, God is in control. Through it all, God is there. Through it all, God is working out His purposes and His timing is perfect. And for the Christian, it all works together for our good. Jesus' delay in coming to save Lazarus from dying teaches us that God's delay in preventing our own personal calamities is squarely within His hands. 
It wasn't an accident that Lazarus died. It wasn't an accident that Jesus wasn't there. The prophet Jeremiah asked, Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord has not decreed it? Is it not um, from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good things come? Everything uh, God does in a Christian's life, no matter how painful, no matter how seemingly insignificant or significant, is an act of love toward His children. No matter what's happening in your life, no matter what's happening in your loved one's life, no matter how tragic the circumstance, no matter how confusing it might seem to you, God is in control and He is working all things together for His purposes and for your good if you belong to Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 4. This is what verse 4 is telling us. This illness does not lead to death it is for the glory of God. His illness that resulted in Lazarus' death was for the purpose of God's glory so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now you heard me contradict verse 4 because I said that this illness did lead to his death. But look, take another look at, at what Jesus says in verse 4. When Jesus heard it, He said, This illness does not lead to death. Well, it certainly did end in death. Jesus said so in verse 14. In verse 14, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Well, here's Jesus' point. Death for a Christian is not death. Death is simply a transition into glory. When you close your eyes in death, you will open them in the presence of God. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he speaks of death as being better than life in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, For we know that if the tent that, our earth, that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, Eternal in the heavens. This building from God will not include a voice that is about to give out. <clears throat> in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, Paul continues. If indeed, uh, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, so that we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Jesus came 
to destroy our fear of death. The book of Hebrews tells us that explicitly. In Christ, in Christ, death is a doorman that ushers us into the presence of our heart's desire. See, the Christian loves Jesus, desires to know Him, follows Him implicitly wherever He would lead, and yearns to see Him. And death escorts us into to the fulfillment of, of all of these deepest of our desires. Is your relationship with Christ real? Is your heart tracking along with what I'm saying about how a Christian desires Christ? Because every one of you who belong to Christ know exactly what I'm saying. This is your daily, your minute-by-minute heart's desire. Jesus, I want to know you. Jesus, I want to see you. Jesus, I want to follow you wherever you lead me. Jesus, I love you. That is the essence of faith. And desiring Christ is not an added addendum to your life. Jesus is not just a ticket into heaven that you put into your back pocket so that you can pull out when you get up to the pearly gates and, uh, as the jokes go, meet Peter there. And then he gives you entrance into heaven. That's not, that's not even remotely biblical. Jesus is God. And having a personal relationship with Him is transformative. Knowing Jesus Christ is transformative. And so that this life becomes less important because Jesus becomes all important. In fact, when you come to know Jesus, and you know the Scriptures, you die to yourself, you take up your cross and follow Him wherever He leads you. And so we have this um, uh, illustrated for us. Uh, look at um, verses 5 and following. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let's go to Judea again. But what's in Judea? In Judea are these Pharisees who had picked up stones to kill Jesus. Remember from last week? <clears throat> Jesus was able to escape them, it almost seems barely, with his life. Because it wasn't yet time for him to die. So he says, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Of course, Jesus answers, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the light, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to him. Of course, the disciples not understanding that. Um, he has to tell them, verse 14, tell them very plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let's go down to him. 
this is interesting, that the disciples might believe Jesus lets His beloved Lazarus die. You know, we are not just individuals living in the presence of God. God's not just blessing one person individually and blessing another person individually and blessing another person and all these things are unconnected. We're all connected. And here's the greatness of God, the mind-blowing greatness of God's sovereignty. He is working the good that He intends for each of His children all at the same moment in an interconnected way bringing about His purposes to millions and millions of Christians all over the world in an interconnected way. It's one thing if I could bless one of my children and then turn around and be able to use that blessing to be a blessing in all my other children's life. I'm just, I'm not able to do that. I've got to bless each one separately. I'm a finite individual, but God is able to bless His disciples and bring glory to Himself and also end up bringing blessing to Lazarus and Mary and Martha by raising Him from the dead. But He is working in all of our lives collectively, individually, bringing His purpose to bear on all. God's greater than we can begin to conceive. And so, uh, He says, we're going to go to them. Is essentially what he says. So verse 16, Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. And all the commentators say, You know, here's Thomas bad-mouthing. You know, oh, well, we might have, we're going to die if we go. But the fact is, he went. That's what some many of the commentators and people who preach on this passage seem to overlook. He went. Why did he go? Because he desired Jesus Christ. And in so desiring Him, he had already died to himself. His desires were to follow Christ. And death was a relatively small thing to him. And really... It was a friend to him, as it will be to you if you trust in Jesus Christ, because death will usher you in to God's presence immediately. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that you are able, and not that you are able, but that you are bringing your glory to bear on every circumstance of our lives. We live in the light of Your presence. Our slow and dull hearts fail to realize this all the time. I ask God that You would remind us as we um, partake Uh, of the communion supper together and remind us throughout this week throughout the watches of the night and also as we go about our lives remind us that you are for us 
Nothing can be against us. Not even death. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.